Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan and welcome back guys. Thanks for joining us once again this week. Before we get started, we wanted to say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. So a massive thank you to Julie Capel, Suzanne Drain, Rachel Webb, Tamara Millions, Laurie Jones, Helen Barber, Jade Ariel Clark, and to Louise Harris and Chris Clark who have signed up as annual patrons. Thank you so much everybody. Yeah, special mention to Chris, friend of the show and Bethan's co-author. It is. Thank you very much, Chris. Really much appreciated. If you would like to join these guys, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. We've got loads of bonus episodes on there. Um, we've got one on Jimmy Savile. We've got one on the Suffolk Strangler. Uh, some really good bonus content. And also your support through Patreon helps to keep the show running. So, uh, So yeah, do check it out if you want to. This week, we take a fresh look at what is possibly the most infamous hate crime in UK criminal history. We're going to be talking about the savage and entirely unprovoked murder of an innocent 18-year-old man who was killed as he waited for a bus by a gang of cowardly racists for no other reason than the colour of his skin. This horrific attack not only robbed a family of a young son, but it cast a broad and ugly light on racial divisions within our society, and it also raised a very difficult question surrounding the integrity of our police, as well as the UK criminal justice system as a whole. Indeed, the progress of this case, which spans nearly two decades, highlights some unbelievable and reprehensible mistakes made by the police, and the case's repercussions would go on to have a profound and irreversible impact on the law, the Met Police, and society as we once knew it. It's a case, isn't it, that I think if you are interested in true crime or our legal system in the slightest, you will know the names and you'll probably know a decent amount about the case but it's also one I think that there's so much more to it and every time I read something new about this case or I hear something new there's a new fact that shocks me and upsets me. Yeah there's it's multifaceted this case and because it it went on for as I said for a couple of decades really before any kind of justice was achieved um, for this individual and, and their family. Yeah, I think, I know for me, for example, I grew up with this in the background, really. It was, it was something that was on the news every year. So, um, so of course, we are talking about the murder of Stephen Lawrence today. And it has an impact on so many other cases as well. Sorry to go back, but you did reference my book by saying Chris was my co-author. But one of the cases in my book um, that I covered, some of the, the, um, distrust of the police and some of the um people not wanting to help and not trusting the police to find one of the women well girl really was was off the back of the fact that Stephen Lawrence's case was quite recent and yeah it's just it it touched a lot of other cases as well either in positive or negative ways yeah and I think definitely in London it had a big impact on absolutely society and and culture and stereotypes Uh, So yeah, it's far-reaching consequences to this case. Stephen Lawrence was born in Greenwich on the 13th of September in 1974 to his mother Doreen, a special needs teacher, and his father Neville, a carpenter. The Lawrence family were a close-knit, hard-working, church-going family who hailed from Jamaica. Stephen's parents had emigrated to the UK together in the mid-1960s. 
Stephen and his siblings were raised in Plumstead, a hilly suburb of south-east London known for its sprawling green spaces, notably Plumstead Common, with walking paths, tennis courts, nature areas and ravines. Stephen was the eldest of three children and was a doting and protective older brother to his younger siblings Stuart and Georgina. He was said to be a born athlete who was fanatical about sport, especially track and field. During his early teenage years, Stephen excelled at running and was a junior member for the local Cambridge Harriers Athletics Club. To those who knew him best, Stephen was a happy, handsome, personable and friendly young man who was very confident and comfortable in his own skin, but he also showed an impressive academic and creative flair. Stephen excelled at secondary school where he was said to be popular and well-loved amongst his classmates and teachers and his former classmate and best friend Dwayne Brooks later commented that Stephen got on very well with everybody and he didn't have any enemies whatsoever. He was the type of guy who people would find themselves naturally drawn to, enchanted by his broad smile, his gentle demeanour and his big personality. I think when you describe him Anybody would think of somebody at their school that sounded like this. Yeah, yeah. He's just one of those really memorable and lovable people. Yeah, a a genuine good guy. And we're not deifying him because of what happened. It's it's a fact. He was a really, he was one of the good guys. After leaving secondary school, Stephen was studying technology and physics at the Blackheath Bluecoat School and English literature and language at Woolwich College. Stephen's mother Doreen later recounted how he had a strong will and an unwavering positive mental attitude towards his future. He seemed to know exactly what he wanted from life and showed a fierce determination to achieve his own goals. Like most young people, Stephen juggled an active social life, schoolwork, family commitments and part-time employment. But he also had ambitions to use his talent for maths, art and design to become an architect and he wanted to have a positive impact on the community in which he lived. It certainly looked as though Stephen was destined for greatness. In an interview which took place some years after the events that we're about to go into, Stephen's brother Stuart fondly recalled how he, Stephen, quote, was almost like that annoying older brother that, as a younger brother, you could never ever get to that level. It didn't matter how much I trained or how hard I worked. When I thought I'd gotten to a certain place, I'd look up and he'd always move that marker another step forward. This was how Stephen's family remember him. However, his name would become known to the wider British public for much more tragic and disturbing reasons. And the fallout of the events that followed would echo for decades to come and literally change the face of race relations in Britain forever. So before we dive in any further, let's hear from the first of today's show sponsors. The story of how Stephen Lawrence met his violent and hateful demise began on the night of Thursday, April the 22nd in 1993, as Stephen and his friend Dwayne Brooks were trying to find a bus that would take them home. Earlier that day, Stephen had spent the day at Blackheath Bluecoat School. Afterwards, he'd browsed around some shops in Lewisham, then travelled by bus to his uncle's house in Grove Park. There, he was joined by Dwayne Brooks, and the two of them played video games before leaving at around 10pm to make the journey home. After the boys realised that the 286 bus on which they were travelling would get them home late, they decided to change for either bus route 161 or 122 along the Wellhall Road in Eltham, a district of south-east London that had already seen three other racist murders in as many years. 
The time was approximately 10.25pm. It was Dwayne Brooks who first spotted them, a group of five white youths walking along Rochester Way on the opposite side of the street. Fatefully, the group of men had already seen Stephen and Dwayne and were soon on the zebra crossing and coming across the road towards them. As the men got closer, they could be heard laughing and uttering racist slurs. The situation was clearly very hostile from the outset. And I think this is really terrifying, isn't it? Because we've talked before about, um, you know, in almost in a light-hearted way about how I'm nervous of like teenagers and you know, going to the shops and there's a group of teenagers hanging around and stuff, it makes me feel nervous. But this is an area where you've just said there have been three murders that were racially aggravated in the first place. And then this group are walking towards you. With, they're already hostile and saying things that are racist. I mean, that this is just, it makes your heart sink, doesn't it? And it, I'm not yeah. even there. Like, it just is horrific to think of. I, I felt exactly the same. I could really picture it in my head. Dark evening, where it's night time, it's nearly half past ten. And yeah, you know, Stephen and Dwayne just there minding their own business. And immediately they would have known that trouble was coming. There were six of these guys crossing the road, making for them. They're shouting racial slurs, so they know that these guys are looking for a fight. And I think, yeah, you'd just panic, wouldn't you? You'd really be thinking, what's going to happen now? The worst is going to happen. So, um, yeah, it really put me in that that mindset of, of what you've said before. Because I'm the same. If I saw a group of even kids, really, you know, young teenagers, they can be really intimidating. It's horrible to have to walk that sort of gauntlet, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's really, um, yeah, it's just really haunting, this idea. And it's terrifying. And I know we've talked as well recently about as a, you know, as a female walking along and if I'm walking at night and some of the things that women feel we have to do to try and protect ourselves because we feel like we're in danger. Um, I know that there's, there's not really any way to compare that with this because this is actually, there is a real visible, you know, audible threat right now. He can hear and see, these two guys can hear and see these this mm. group of men so it's not even on a par with the fact that i can think of times that i felt nervous i also think it's um i can't i just can't imagine really what it's like for them to know that they're about to be attacked purely because of their race and their skin color because we have talked a lot about female safety uh, following the sarah everard case which we did cover and um that is almost men taking advantage of what they would perceive to be a weakness that women have, that they're just not as strong as their opposite sex. So that's them being taken advantage of for their uh, sex. But this is guys being attacked because they're black, um, not not being taken advantage because of that, but being attacked for it. Exactly. And it it's taking advantage of that situation in any way that they're um, two guys as well. It's this group of, did you say six guys? Six, I mean, that's yeah. just, oh, that's horrific. So as Dwayne and Stephen grew increasingly nervous, Dwayne walked to the corner to see if he could see the bus. Seeing nothing, he called out to Stephen and asked if he could see any buses approaching. Stephen didn't respond, but one of the six men across the street did. He directed a hostile, racist insult at Stephen, which was quickly followed by a further hail of abuse from all of the men in the group. Dwayne then observed the leader of this gang pull out a knife from his waistband. 
There was no provocation whatsoever, no arguments, no prior threats, nothing. Stephen didn't know his attackers, and his attackers didn't know him. He was just a young boy minding his own business and not looking for trouble that night. His only mistake, and I hate to say this, but was being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong skin colour. And I don't mean that literally, I just mean from these guys' point of view. The six men marked their target and crossed the road. As they aimed a torrent of verbal racist abuse at the boys, they menacingly paced directly towards Stephen. In an attack that was later described by eyewitnesses as short but savage, this mob set upon Stephen like a pack of wild animals. After charging towards him, one of Stephen's assailants pulled a knife and forcefully stabbed him several times. Two stab wounds were inflicted on his torso and a further two penetrated his right collarbone area and left shoulder. It was later found that the knife used in this monstrous attack had pierced Stephen's flesh to a depth of about five inches, which proved to be more than enough to completely sever two auxiliary arteries as well as to penetrate one of his lungs. As the sickening attack unfolded, the now gravely wounded Stephen was knocked to the ground where he was repeatedly kicked and punched. A horrified Dwayne screamed at Stephen to get up and run away, as he himself did the same. Eyewitnesses to the attack described it as very quick, lasting no more than 10 seconds, but as I said, they said it was savage. When the gang stopped their deadly assault on Stephen and fled the scene, they ran away down Dixon Road. Stephen, who was critically injured but still conscious at this point, got up and sprinted with impressive speed behind Dwayne in the direction of Shooter's Hill. However, after about 200 yards, Stephen's injuries began to take their toll and he quickly began to falter. He realised he'd lost all sensation in one side of his body and his now collapsed lung was struggling to take in adequate oxygen. Stephen began to go into shock now. He managed to make a final weakened plea to Dwayne for help before collapsing unconscious onto the pavement, bleeding heavily. The pathologist later commented that Stephen's injuries were so severe that just managing to run the distance that he did with a collapsed lung was, quote, a testimony to his physical fitness. Jesus, this is, I mean, it just, I don't even have words. It's so horrific and savage and awful. Yeah, these were just such grave injuries and the fact that he managed to get up and run 200 yards before collapsing again is unbelievable. Dwayne ran to call an ambulance while a passing off-duty police officer stopped his car and covered Stephen with a blanket. However, it was far too late to save him. By the time the first police responders reached the scene, just before 11pm, Stephen was already dead. Shockingly, even when they couldn't find a pulse, the police did not even attempt any CPR or interventional medical treatment due to the large amount of blood that was present on his body. As a result of this, they wrongly assumed that Stephen had sustained a head injury and initially failed to detect his two five-inch deep stab wounds that were the ultimate cause of his death. Furthermore, despite Dwayne Brooks giving the police a detailed description of the men and the direction in which they'd run, they instead appeared to be more inclined to accuse him of being the culprit. This is just absolutely disgraceful, isn't it? I mean, this guy's best friend has just been attacked and murdered and they are not even 
not even thinking about humoring him and looking at what he's telling them like that's awful i um i I really obviously really feel for Dwayne because he's seen this happen he knows his friend is most likely dead already and he's just he must have just gone into shock at this point and he must also have an element of how am i still alive how did i escape this um yeah like the survivor's guilt sort of side of it as well as the shock that he's in and what he's just seen and witnessed and i mean i i get it to a point because if a husband is found dead in a house then the wife will be the immediate suspect vice versa your spouse is is going to be under suspicion initially all of these sorts of things so potentially but why was he under suspicion why you know what would have been the reason also there's loads of other eyewitnesses if you just listen to his statement and then go and see if it is corroborated by other eyewitnesses why is he even slightly under suspicion and it later emerged that the officers who attended the scene had never received any medical training and were found to be unable to answer even the most basic of first aid questions. Oh, that's actually quite terrifying from like a general yeah. public point of view, isn't it? That's ridiculous. It really is. And, and this embarrassing revelation merely sets the tone for the rest of the investigation into Stephen's murder, which was said to be clumsy, uncoordinated and half-arsed right from the get-go. And it's it's kind of going back to what you were saying, despite knowing that Stephen was actually dead before the ambulance arrived, in addition to Dwayne uh, kind of telling the police that my friend's been murdered and that the guys have run in that direction and this is what they look like, the police just failed to go looking for the suspects or even to secure the murder scene. They just kind of stayed there with Stephen's body, but it was clear at this point that Stephen was dead. So really, some of the officers should have stayed there to protect the scene and the others should have gone in the direction that Dwayne had pointed them. And even if you think you've got the killer... You still secure that scene because you you need the evidence to be z- yeah. preserved when you take this to court. Like and just even head, if head that was him, yeah, I'd be like, well, it could could be this guy that stood next to the body, or it could be that he's telling the truth. So we'll keep some people here and we'll send a couple of officers in that direction just to see what they can find. But but they didn't do it at all. And really, it's worse because, in fact, Dwayne was all but ignored by some of the officers at the scene, and he was certainly treated with suspicion and even outright contempt by other officers. Um, But nevertheless, despite all of this, the Met Police did launch a murder investigation, and they were actually able to find three eyewitnesses who'd been present at the bus stop at the time of the attack. All three said in statements that the attack was sudden and short, however none of them were able to identify the suspects. As the news of Stephen Lawrence's murder spread throughout London, several residents did not hesitate to come forward with very credible leads. One even left an anonymous note on a police car windscreen that contained a list of names. That and is brave. All... It's that amazing. That is a really wonderful thing to have done. And almost all of these tip-offs that were provided to police had the exact same names on them and it was six members of a local gang who were all known within that community and known to the police for racially motivated attacks on young black teenagers. And from this information, investigators were able to identify five prime suspects. So they are, or were, Gary Dobson, brothers Neil and Jamie Acourt, Luke Knight and David Norris. As I said, all five men were known to the police. They were known to be violent racist thugs with a fearsome reputation for carrying and using knives. 
Four weeks before Stephen's death, Gary Dobson and Neil Acourt had been involved in another racist attack on a black teenager whom they racially abused and attempted to stab. The Acourt brothers, Neil and Jamie, were at the very centre of the gang and it is said that they were so fascinated by the Cray twins that they dubbed their own gang the Eltham Crays. That's just so pathetic. Oh my God, isn't it? That's exactly what I thought. And this fact alone gives you some idea of their overall intellect and level of civility. But isn't that just pathetic, trying to emulate the craze? David Norris wasn't much better. As the son of the notoriously violent fugitive London gangster Clifford Norris, David was, like father like son, also an aggressive thug who had been linked to several violent incidents in and around Eltham. Gary Dobson was more of a follower, that is to say that he was perceived as an impressionable young man who possessed little in terms of intellect and street smarts, and he had very few previous convictions to his name at the time of Stephen's murder. And the same could arguably be said of the final suspect, Luke Knight. It appeared that he was just another troubled young man who fell in with the wrong crowd and got swept up in the Acourt Brothers campaign of racism and violence. As police looked deeper into the criminal backgrounds of their five suspects, it emerged that in May 1992, Jamie Acourt had been accused of stabbing another teenager and was later accused of stabbing another one, this time a year after Stephen's murder in 1994. Those charges were dropped by the CPS due to a lack of evidence. Further stabbings of two other teenage victims, which both occurred in March 1993, so just a month before Stephen's murder, in the same area in Eltham, were also linked to the Acourt brothers, as well as David Norris and Gary Dobson. The profiles and criminal histories of the five suspects certainly matched Dwayne Brooks's testimony. On the face of it, it seemed that the police had everything they needed in order to swoop in and arrest these alleged killers. However, that's not what happened. What happened next may, and probably will, be quite upsetting to you. Those early days of the investigation, like all major investigations, were crucial and required the utmost efficiency and professionalism. However, the investigation into the killing of Stephen Lawrence was doomed to failure from the very start. The running of the investigation was a demonstration of woeful incompetence and unprofessionalism. It was disorganised, haphazard, lazy and lacking in any sense of urgency. The officers involved in the investigation almost appeared to have an attitude of complete indifference and disinterest and some even refused to acknowledge that the attack had been racially motivated. There was plenty of forensic evidence present at the crime scene but very little of that was gathered up. In short, it was quite clear that the investigators running the case didn't care either way whether Stephen Lawrence got the justice that he deserved. As I said, in the immediate aftermath of the killing, police had their five prime suspects. They had first-hand eyewitness accounts, they had a motive and probable cause to secure murder convictions. There simply was no argument to delay action being taken. However, police waited an astonishing two weeks before any arrests were made. Two weeks. It's just yeah. absolutely horrific. I just, and I just want, 
I just want to make it clear in that time that had these these guys' names put forward by multiple people in the area, there would have been DNA evidence, there were the eyewitness accounts, you had Dwayne there who had seen it all happen and would have been able to identify some of these people in a lineup, and nothing was done for two weeks. And in that time, obviously, they could really collude and get rid of evidence, etc. Yeah, it's it's the worst. Threaten witnesses also. Yeah, of course. I think as well, something that really, that I find really difficult to comprehend and I don't think I'll ever understand is how it must have felt being a black police officer in the midst of all this as well. Seeing people just go, well, it's definitely not racially motivated. Everybody has said that they were shouting racist slurs as they attacked the two boys and that they have been the face of racial attacks galore. Like, I can't even imagine how that must have felt to be a black police officer at the time or even a not racist person at the time in the police force. Like, what the hell? And seeing all of that happen. I think the thing was, back in 1993 when this happened and when they would have been investigating it, there were probably barely any black people in the Met Police um, because it was institutionally racist. They wouldn't have gone out to recruit people of colour. And for those that were in the force, what what would you do? You you stand up and blow the whistle. You just can't do it. It's it's an impossible task to try and change it from within when there's so few of you. Yeah, that's it. And and when I knew that we were going to be talking about this, and I know that this is a, a part of the case that always hits me, I looked up um, when the first black police officer became a part of the Met Police. Do you actually do you want to try and guess, or shall I just tell you when the first black man was a police officer in the Met? I mean, I don't know how long the Met's been going, but I would, I would, I don't know, I would say the 70s. You're really close. 1966. Isn't that absolutely crazy? So you're right, there wouldn't have been very many, uh, you know, black people on the police force at the time, but potentially at this point in the 90s, but it wouldn't have been none, like it wouldn't have been all white yeah, people. you're right. It's, no. It's just something that I... I I know it's just such an aside to the actual case, but it just, I can't imagine going to work being surrounded by people who are potentially purposefully or just through laziness not investigating a case that is clearly racist. It just Mm. boggles my mind. I know. Yeah, I feel for any of those that were in that situation, any of those individuals that were um, unable to, to really go out and get justice for Stephen because of the institutional racism within the force. Um, That would have had a lasting impact on them. The lead investigators would later try and excuse their actions, or lack thereof, by claiming that they did not have enough credible information to justify making any arrests. However, this was later determined by a board of inquiry to be simply not true. In reality, the police received literally, it was dozens of tip-offs from the public, more than enough to make immediate and legitimate arrests based on probable cause. And this is a really interesting bit coming up. So to make matters even worse, Detective Superintendent Brian Whedon, the officer who was initially in charge of the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation, he later explained to an incredulous public inquiry in 1998 
that part of the reason no arrests had taken place by the fourth day after the killing was that he had not known the law allowed arrest upon reasonable suspicion, which even to us as civilians is a basic and fundamental point of criminal law. So he didn't know that reasonable suspicion was grounds enough to make arrests. And he's the... He was in charge of the And the he's the detective superintendent in charge. Yeah. How worrying is that? They have to take exams to get these promotions. He's just um, bullshit and he's just talking out his ass. Oh, it's bollocks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But but yeah, to, you've had dozens of people come forward with the same names. That is enough to go out and arrest them on suspicion of being involved in Stephen's murder and to question them and then to search their homes, etc. Had that been done early on, then this would have uh, taken a complete different path and would have been resolved much more quickly. But it wasn't done. Even when a police photographer who was keeping an eye on the Acourt residence spotted Jamie Acourt leaving the house and driving away with a black bin bag full of potential evidence, the force still did nothing. Neither the bag or its contents have ever been found and many detectives now believe that Jamie was, of course, disposing of contaminated clothes, which would have been a key piece of evidence that could have easily nailed this case shut. So how crazy is that? They're they're watching his house. He's a suspect. They're not arrested him yet because they don't think they've got enough grounds to arrest him. They're seeing him brazenly brazenly leave his home, drive off with a big black plastic bag of probably clothes and they still do nothing they don't they could have they could have got a squad car out to to get on him straight away and checked what he was disposing of but they didn't or like follow to where he then disposes yeah. of it and then keep an eye on what he's you know anything yeah anything more than this absolute lack of police work basically yeah And throughout this run of infuriating lack of progress, Stephen's parents Doreen and Neville Lawrence vocally slammed not just the investigators running Stephen's murder inquiry, but the Met Police as an institution, with Doreen commenting to the media that had Stephen been a white boy, they would not stop until they get the killer. Yeah, and she's totally right. Absolutely right. It's so awful for a mother to have to even think that about her own son. Yeah. At this point, the Met had very little means to deny that Doreen was right. Meanwhile, the Lawrence family's crusade for justice went from strength to strength. Public support for Doreen was growing, she was making her voice heard loud and clear through the media, and also through a network of connections, and she even managed to enlist the support of former South African President Nelson Mandela, who openly stood side by side with Doreen and lobbied for justice on her behalf. Of course, Nelson Mandela was a globally respected, highly influential power figure throughout his later life and career, and his vocal and public support for the Lawrences was without doubt instrumental to their mission to get justice for their murdered son. Speaking outside a hotel shortly after meeting the Lawrence family in London, Mr Mandela said to reporters, We are very used to this type of thing, where real life is regarded as cheap in South Africa, but nevertheless it is a sense of deep concern that it should happen in a country like Britain. Suddenly, with so much global publicity surrounding the case, the Met were unable to go on ignoring the Lawrence family's pleas for justice, or to deny the obvious racial motivations of his killers any longer. With the eyes of the entire world now focused firmly on the Met and under such intense public pressure, they had no choice but to act accordingly. And so on Friday the 7th of May in 1993, a large team of police officers conducted dawn raids on the suspects' homes. 
Once inside, they arrested the suspects and took them into custody before conducting thorough searches of their homes. This was the Met's one and only opportunity to redeem themselves and to squash all public allegations that they were an institutionally racist organisation. However, they once again failed miserably to do the right thing. When David Norris's large upper-class family home was raided by the police, he himself wasn't there. The police had every justification to search the house anyway, but they chose not to because they didn't want to damage the home's expensive interior. So not only have they waited since April until May to go and do this, yeah, they don't do it properly. No, no, it's a complete mm-hmm. shit show. Yeah. Similarly, when the police showed up at the Acourt brothers' family home, they once again failed to act upon reliable intelligence that the brothers kept their knives under the floorboards. The house was only given a basic once-over search, and the police failed to locate the murder weapon, which was quite likely under the floorboards in that house, and the police knew that that was a possibility, but they didn't bother looking. Instead, they took several items of clothing from their wardrobes in order to check for DNA evidence. So they kind of got that bit right. The only asset the police had was Dwayne Brooks, who police hoped would be able to positively identify all of Stephen's killers in a lineup. Over the course of three identity parades, Dwayne was able to identify Luke Knight and Jamie Acourt. However, he subsequently failed to pick out Neil Acourt, David Norris or Gary Dobson. Not being funny, he was under so much stress in the moment. Um, He was running for his life, having seen his best friend be stabbed to death. You're not really looking at those men's faces. You're looking at their hands and what weapons they've got. And you're looking at your friend who's on the floor bleeding profusely. But it was also half ten at night. It was half ten at night. Yeah, and like a group of six men coming towards you, you're not going to be able to pick out facial face. To be honest, all of their expressions would have been savage, angry, horrific facial expressions that makes a person's face look different anyway. I... Of course, he's and putting all of this on this young lad who is also probably quite terrified for his life. Now yeah. that he's the only person who can be the, he's the only witness to to what these the people hell? that are really you know high up in the criminal underworld in London, mm-hmm. um, and also he's grieving for his friend Stephen. Yeah, um, and also probably really starting to have that survivor's guilt of how the hell did I make this out alive. And actually, something else I've just thought of it that I've never thought of before as well is with this identity side of things is he's probably blacked out a lot of what he's seen and, and experienced. Yeah. His mind is probably shut down at certain points of it because it's too horrific to remember. So actually, yeah, like there's a lot of factors as to why he might not recognize people. And it was a, it was a very quick attack. And the, this group Yeah, 10 six, seconds, you said, didn't you? Yeah, so, and the group had already started throwing racial slurs at them from the other side of the road and so it wasn't just 10 seconds but um but you're not going to remember the faces of six different people you will remember a couple of them for sure if you saw them again but like he did in this lineup but you're not going to remember everybody um look at people in the face if they're shouting abuse you'd probably keep your head down and try and stay out of their eye line and stuff like that as well oh it makes me so cross and of course, the fact that he could, and this was of course not his fault, but the fact that he could only identify two of the five suspects was a bitter blow to an already severely weakened investigation. Now clutching at straws, investigators could only hope that one of the suspects would slip up and unintentionally give the game away under questioning. 
but of course that was overly optimistic. All of the suspects in custody were experienced troublemakers and due to the long delay by the police to take decisive action, they had had ample time to collaborate and get their stories perfectly aligned. Their alibis and responses to key questions put to them all added up handsomely and it was really clear that they had spent time together rehearsing and practising for this exact scenario, which of course they must have known would be coming any day. Meanwhile, the news that the men had been arrested was, of course, welcomed by Stephen's grieving family, and they dared to believe that they may just see justice done for their son. The damage had been done, however, and Stephen's death had convinced the Lawrence family that they had been right all along. London was an inherently cruel and hostile place. Commenting that they did not want Stephen to be buried in racist soil, they flew his body away to be laid to rest in the family's native home of Jamaica. To this day, the burial site's exact location in Jamaica remains a fiercely guarded family secret. However, Stephen's murder was only the beginning of a journey of unimaginable torment that would last for many years for this family. Just days after the funeral, the Lawrence family received an update that the CPS had made the controversial decision to drop all charges against two of Stephen's alleged killers due to an apparent lack of evidence. In August 1993, the Met Police launched an internal review of the case. The review took many months to get through and many believed that it would steer the investigation back on course and finally get justice for Stephen Lawrence. However, this was not what happened. On the 16th of April in 1994, despite mounting public pressure, the Crown Prosecution Service stood their ground and stated they did not have enough evidence for murder charges against anyone else. So I think that they initially were only bringing charges against the two that Dwayne had identified in the lineup. The other three, they they just did not have enough evidence against. So they were going to progress with charges against two of them and then the CPS decided to drop those charges because of a lack of other evidence. Yeah, because the police didn't bother to get any other evidence. Exactly. And the Lawrence family, along with most of the British public, were outraged. It certainly looked for all intents and purposes that the racist thugs who'd killed Stephen Lawrence were about to get away with it. However, recognising the need for a more definitive outcome, top brass at the Met regrouped, reshuffled the investigation team and changed tactics. They wanted to take a more vigorous and proactive approach to catching the killers and they did this by covertly installing a hidden camera in a plug socket in Gary Dobson's flat. The hope was that they could secretly record the men admitting or implicating themselves in the killing of Stephen. Analysing the video footage in real time, investigators observed the men, Dobson and Norris especially, spewing several disgusting, foul-mouthed rants, boasting about inflicting violent acts on black and Asian people. Dobson said, I would go down Catford and places like that and I'm telling you now, with two submachine guns and I'm telling you I'd take one of them. Skin the black alive, mate. Torture him, set him alight. I'd blow their two legs and arms off and say, go on, you can swim home now. Despite being able to gather an abundance of evidence that demonstrated their deeply racist mindsets and obvious hatred for black people, none of them openly admitted to killing Stephen, and therefore the footage was deemed by the CPS to be inadmissible. 
By 1997, the Lawrence family lost patience with the police investigators and took the risky decision of taking matters into their own hands by launching a private murder prosecution, which was the first of its kind in more than 150 years of legal history. And this was to be against Gary Dobson, Neil Acourt and Luke Knight. It's such a big gamble to take and such a a huge step to take. It's so brave and they were so desperate uh, to, to get any kind of justice. And I think they just had lost all faith in the police. So it's, it is a gamble, but what's the alternative? The police are going to mm-hmm. do fuck all anyway. Yep. The Lawrences recognise that they did not yet have strong enough evidence to include Jamie Acourt or David Norris in their legal offensive, so they left them out of it for the time being. And this was done with the help from their lawyer, who had agreed to work for free, as the family were not entitled to any legal aid because it was a, a private prosecution. So as we said, this was a huge risk to the Lawrence's quest for justice, largely because at the time, the UK criminal justice system still observed the double jeopardy law, the legal principle which dictates that a person cannot be tried for the same crime twice. For example, if a defendant charged with assault is found not guilty, that same person cannot be tried again for the same crime in the same case. Put another way, this was the Lawrence family's one and only shot of securing a conviction against Stephen's alleged killers. Should their case fail to convince the courts, then three of the five murderers would likely never again face any further trial for what they'd done. Nevertheless, they decided to go ahead with it anyway. Their entire case was built around the eyewitness testimony of Dwayne Brooks, as well as the surveillance footage from inside Gary Dobson's flat, which proved beyond doubt that the attack on Stephen was indeed racially motivated. The case finally went to trial on April 18th in 1996, but before we hear whether the Lawrence family's gamble paid off, let's hear from the second and final sponsor of today's episode. Very sadly, the Lawrence's gamble to achieve a private prosecution failed to pay off. Their key witness, Dwayne Brooks, was almost certainly at that time suffering from some degree of post-traumatic stress disorder, as we sort of alluded to, and as he repeatedly fell apart emotionally when put on the witness stand, he was viewed by the jury as an unreliable witness due to his clearly fragile state of mental health. Which it's just breaks my heart. A yeah, unreliable witness. No, he's the most reliable witness that they have, but he is also fragile mentally because he's just witnessed what he witnessed. Because he's the witness. Oh, it and makes I me also, so cross. I also think back then in the mid nineties, mental health wasn't really on the agenda. They probably didn't really know what PTSD was. People had come back from the Gulf War in the early nineties, and they would call it shell shock still or Gulf War syndrome which we now know to be PTSD. So that didn't really exist as a term. It hadn't been studied or looked into. So I don't know, but it's unlikely, I would say, that Dwayne got the help that he would have so desperately needed. As such, the trial didn't progress much further and the three suspects were acquitted of murder on the 23rd of April in 1996. And of course, in line with the double jeopardy law, they could never again be tried for Stephen's murder. So just like that, the Lawrence family's dream of getting justice for Stephen was gone in an instant. The public outcry after the trial was just as bitter, and the media demanded a public inquiry into the shambolic handling of the case. An inquest into Stephen's death took place in February 1997, but got no further in his family's quest for justice. 
During the proceedings, the suspects refused to answer any questions, including confirming their own names. Outraged, the Daily Mail, a British tabloid newspaper, splashed the words murderers and pictures of all five of the men on its front page. And the headline read, murderers, the mail accuses these men of killing. If we are wrong, let them sue us. And to this day, none of the men have ever tried to sue the Daily Mail for defamation. Which not only says a lot, but I also think I really want to just like salute the Daily Mail for that. I do. How brave. And everyone says they're dicks, but that's the quality move on their part. It really is. And it just goes to show how the public was so behind it as well. Like people, people genuinely were so angry on behalf of Stephen Lawrence and his family. It's, It's just such like petty behavior as well not even to confirm your own name we're just not even going to answer anything it's so disrespectful and oh yeah later that same year the mcpherson inquiry a deep and public examination of the original met police service investigation was launched by the home secretary jack straw and that investigated both the killing and the police response When it was released in February 1999, the damning 350-page report concluded that the investigation was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership. The Met had finally been called out for its incompetence and racism, but this did little to ease the pain and frustration of the Lawrence family, who had to watch Stephen's killers leave the inquiry as free men as they brazenly taunted, and listen to this, spat at a waiting army of journalists and angry protesters. We know how I feel about spitting, don't we, Mark? But what? It's just (sighs) animals. Yeah, they're just absolute thugs. And when you described them at the beginning, at the top of the episode of of who they were... Sorry, Bella, um, Evie's really trying to join in with this episode as well. But um, when the way you described them, these thugs, you don't think anything less of them. They're just going to be animals and behave yeah. like animals. And it's just horrific, isn't it? It is. And of course, the Lawrence family knew that these men had killed Stephen. And so too did the public. And of course, the men themselves knew that they had killed Stephen. But there was nowhere else to turn. And any hope of a fair and just end to the story was quickly fading. This remained the case for six years, until 2005, when a much-anticipated change in the law brought about fresh hope for justice. The double jeopardy law was scrapped in the UK, meaning that any new evidence brought against a suspect, even after a not guilty verdict, could now legally result in a brand new trial. Amazing, such a massive part of our history in the legal way, that it's such an important change, and so very much needed i know we've talked about it before really long overdue absolutely for the stephen lawrence investigation it represented hope but it also presented the met with new challenges finding new evidence in 2006 detective clive driscoll decided to revive the cold case and start afresh from the very beginning this time with a strong emphasis on locating previously overlooked forensic evidence, an angle that had, up until that point, been woefully neglected. Driscoll ordered a thorough and painstaking re-examination of the suspect's clothing. This had been done in the original investigation, but it had been done lazily by the very officers who had since been condemned by the government as incompetent racists. Furthermore, forensic science had evolved exponentially since the 90s. As such, Driscoll was eager to go back to the drawing board and leave no forensic stone unturned. His dogged determination paid off and Driscoll managed to bring about the first real victory for the Lawrences. 
Driscoll's forensic team had discovered a microscopic trace of Stephen's blood in Gary Dobson's jacket. It had apparently dried into the fibres and its tiny size implied this had happened very quickly. Similar traces of Stephen's blood were also found in several items of David Norris's clothing. No further evidence was discovered that implicated any of the remaining three suspects and they were subsequently not charged. In September 2011, Gary Dobson, who was in prison at the time for drug dealing, and David Norris both had their earlier acquittals quashed and they were duly re-arrested and once again charged with Stephen's murder. Their trial began on the 14th of November in 2011. The case centred on the new forensic evidence and whether it demonstrated the defendant's involvement in the murder or whether it was the result of later contamination due to incompetent police handling. The Lawrence family were present in court to witness their small slice of closure for Stephen and they watched in silent apprehension as Dwayne Brooks finally got his chance to face a jury and explain in full for the very first time exactly what had happened that night 18 years earlier. Dwayne remained strong and steadfast throughout his testimony. He undoubtedly did Stephen proud as his testimony was firmly backed by the compelling forensic evidence. I keep using this word about him but just brave and... Um, I feel so glad for him that he finally got his opportunity. Whilst it's frustrating it was so late on, actually how wonderful for him that he did get to have his time and his moment in front of the court and and say this is definitely what happened. Yeah, and I'm sure that would have brought him so much closure, even though that, that will never bring Stephen back. But the fact that he could stand up in court in a proper criminal trial and do Stephen proud and help to secure convictions in the name of justice for Stephen, it's, yeah, it's immense. absolutely. Yeah, especially having tried to, to do that in the private prosecution years earlier and, and really struggled with that. It would have been doubly hard to go back and, and nail it this time. The defence's attempt to plant doubt in the minds of the jury regarding the validity of the forensic evidence fell flat and on the 3rd of January in 2012, after the jury had deliberated for just over eight hours, Gary Dobson and David Norris were found guilty of Stephen Lawrence's murder. The two men were sentenced on the 4th of January the following year to a life sentence with minimum terms of 15 years and two months for Dobson and 14 years and three months for Norris. The judge clearly stated that the apparently lenient sentences reflected the fact that Dobson and Norris were juveniles at the time of the offence at age 17. The judge at their trial described the attack as a crime committed for no other reason than racial hatred and he added, A totally innocent 18-year-old youth on the threshold of a promising life was brutally cut down in the street in front of eyewitnesses by a racist, thuggish gang. You were both members of that gang. I have no doubt at all that you fully subscribe to its views and attitudes. So I didn't realise, sorry, I didn't realise that they were teenagers themselves. For some reason, I've always assumed that they were older than Stephen. And I don't know where I've always had that thought from. I'm not sure. Um, So that was the reason for the length of the sentences was because technically at the time of committing the crime, they were juveniles. Do you know what? That's a fact that has always... somehow I've managed to avoid knowing so that's interesting it makes it somehow worse as well like that they're that young and they're behaving in this I don't know whether it's worse for a group of men or if it's worse for teenagers to be this awful but do do you know why I think that you would think 
those individuals were older than Stephen. It's because Stephen is frozen in time for us. We have all those iconic photos of him at 18 or younger. Mm -hmm. And then we've seen these suspects and the two that were convicted. We've seen their pictures in, in the paper over, you know, 10, 15 years that followed and they would have aged and they've become grown men. So I know I see them in my head as men in their 20s. Uh, and these not... were men on trial at this point. So oh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah. so right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Speaking outside the courthouse, Doreen Lawrence held back tears as she read an emotional statement. She said, despite these verdicts, today is not a cause for celebration. How can I celebrate when my son lies buried? When I cannot see him or speak to him, when will I see him grow up or go to university or get married or have children? Whilst the Metropolitan Police have given up, I never will. She said, I am truly disappointed that those others who are equally responsible may not be brought to justice. And that's where I really wanted to end the episode because this is still um, so frustrating that there were two convictions, but we know that there should have been other convictions in this case. So you can't say that we have achieved justice for Stephen Lawrence and his family. It's only partial. Yeah. And whereas I like to try and end on a, a little bit of a lighter note, that is actually a really poignant, albeit very tragic end. Yeah. It's actually a really perfect point as well because he's he does go down in history as, as somebody and he's, you know, there have been changes made with laws that are reflected in this case, but then also in other cases and he's still mentioned so much. But yeah, his family have not had proper justice. No, I, I do think you're right, though. I do think that there is a real legacy off the back of all of this. And even down, I, I, I don't know the Met Police inner workings, but I, I know I know that they've done an awful lot to stamp out that institutional racism that was present in the 80s, 90s, early 90s. And they have done a lot. And I would really hope that they've, they've made some headway in changing... Uh, who they are and their culture and I, I really think they have done um but but yeah that culture did exist uh at this time so yeah very sad for for Stephen and, and his family so okay thank you for listening everybody we'll be back with our penultimate episode of season six next week and uh we'll be taking a two-week break over Christmas but two more episodes to go uh so we will see you next week bye thanks for listening guys bye